episode 1278 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. I am Sam Miller of ESPN Opening. Jeff Sullivan, Fangraphs, we're doing a podcast opener scenario. This is a bad joke, but leave it in. <laughs> okay. So we saw some wildcard games. We've got some division series starting. We should talk about all of these things. This will just be a playoff episode, as far as I know. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the broadcast of the NL wildcard game. I know you didn't get to see it because it wasn't available online, but it was really good. I thought we talked to Jason Panetti, of course, to preview it a little bit, and I thought it turned out really well. I know it was very well received by our listeners, but I got the sense that it was well received by pretty much everyone. And I thought it was really well done. It was Jason, Mike Petriello, Eduardo Perez. And it wasn't so much the stats that I liked about it. I mean, the stats were good, and I don't know if there were any stats that made me say wow, but there were definitely some stats that made me say huh. So that was good. But even more so than that, and and even more so than the graphics, which were also cool. Like I liked seeing the you know directional range stuff for the outfielders and the stolen base probability and the ground ball spray angles and all of that. That was interesting and good, and I thought it added something to it. But To me, it was more just like the absence of comments that make you shake your head. That was really the benefit of it, I think. It was just a bunch of people who really liked baseball in the booth without any of the baseball grump sort of stuff that we've talked about on the podcast, without any of the back in my day. It was like, you know, great play-by-play guy. Petriello with good color and stats and facts and Perez with the good player perspective, but all sort of enthusiastic about baseball in a way that you'd think you would hear on every broadcast, but you don't. And I can't compare and contrast with the main ESPN broadcast of that game because I wasn't listening to it, but just the general broadcast I thought showed, I don't know, less excitement about baseball than the supposed stat head broadcast. Yeah, through MLB TV, it did not, at least not to my knowledge, it did not present the option to listen to the StatCast broadcast, which made me feel like a bit of a hack, considering we had just interviewed Jason (laughs) Benetti to talk about specifically that broadcast, and this is my line of work. But in any case, I can at least offer some thoughts on what I think happened. And uh, (laughs) I can say, for one thing, I I have no idea how well-received something like this is, because we, we are hopelessly... And entwined in our bubble of people who who feel like we do. I have muted most people who don't feel like I do on Twitter, (laughs) which is the only place where I'm exposed to the world. But it's a little like if you were, you're talking about a baseball team, you're talking about a roster, and a typical broadcast might have some some superstar uh, baseball players, but a typical broadcast might also have, let's call him, I don't know, like an Orioles Chris Davis, or maybe just like, I don't know, a Pedro Alvarez, Danny Valencia, name Orioles players this year. Many of them are bad. (laughs) And you had, like, I was going to make the same point that you did. Now I'm just making it a different way, I guess. But what you can, you can focus on what an alternative broadcast like the uh, like the Sackass broadcast does and the things that it highlights, but it really is just as much, if not even more, about the absence, about just eliminating like the negative war players, if you will. Right. You get rid of the below replacement players and then you just lift them up. It doesn't even matter if you replace them with something great. It's just if you replace them with something that doesn't suck, then the broadcast mm-hmm. is better. And yeah. I like, I know they, they have done this with like a, with stack, they've attempted Stackcast broadcast before with with different booths, but when you have Jason Benetti, 
who announces games in a very pleasurable way. He's a, yes. he's very good at it. He's very experienced at it. Eduardo Perez, of course, also very experienced. Mike Petriello, the least experienced, but has a podcast and functions very well as a color guy. I'm I'm given to understand. It mm-hmm. just you would it it makes it. I can't think of the word, but having Jason Benetti there to sort of lead it, it just opens the door to so many people because you're not struck abruptly by how different the broadcast is. You're just like, oh, this is just a regular baseball broadcast with a guy who sounds like he should be broadcasting baseball, yeah. and this is smarter. So that much uh, that much I like, and the other point I was going to raise, I have forgotten what it was as I've been talking, and so we will see if it reoccurs to me before, okay. the, uh, before the topic changes. Yeah, well, the first time anyone tried a broadcast like this, which was, I think, Fox a, a few years ago with Rob Nyer and others, and, you know, it was the first time, so obviously there were going to be growing pains and baby steps, and it was like a, a studio sort of setup where they showed the people all the time, and then the game was like on a screen in the studio or it was like split screen or something it it was definitely not your typical broadcast it was like a bunch of stat people sit around and watch a game and you watch the stat people watch the game more so than <laughs> than what this was and you know it was the first time they tried it so it wasn't going to be perfect the implementation right away but i think this was far better in that you could have turned this on and not realized that it was any sort of alternative broadcast it just looked like a game with some more graphics and stats and you know there are little things you could quibble with about how they displayed certain things like I think putting war on the screen when batters came up was ultimately kind of confusing because war considers everything base running defense and so there were a lot of times where someone was a decent hitter but just you know it was like Kyle Schwarber would come up or something and you know the war wouldn't be what you expect because his defense isn't that great or his base running or something and really all you want to see is a guy's hitting stats at that point but these are little quibbles and really I mean I don't know that they ever ran out of material but I think as the game stretched on and on and on and on (laughs) there were fewer sort of prepared talking points and so I think they all just kind of loosened up and just talked about baseball with fewer like you know oh we got to get this stat in because we prepared to get this stat in when this guy came up sort of situations and I thought it was great. And as you were saying, just like not getting, you know, someone making too much of a two for four history against a certain pitcher or something like those are the things that bother you on a broadcast where people just say misleading things or counterfactual things. And there was just an absence of that on this broadcast that was very refreshing. And I think contrary to the idea that stat heads don't love the game or they sap all the joy out of the game or something, I think for most of us, the reason why we dig into these numbers and look at all of this information is because we really love baseball and just love the sport and started out watching it like anyone else watches it. And I think that enthusiasm came through here. It wasn't like the stats were bogging down the broadcast or taking the fun out of it. It was just like a manifestation of the enthusiasm that these people have for the game. Yeah, I, I like having war as part of the broadcast. Again, I didn't get to see it, but I would think here's the, the way that I would do it is when you were introducing the starting lineups for each team, then I would show their names and their pictures and their war. And then when they when they come up to the plate, then you just show right. offensive statistics. And I think that's the balance that you would want to do because you're right, war doesn't really make sense when someone comes up to the plate. If like J.D. Martinez comes up, then you're like, oh, his war actually wasn't as high as I thought. Well, he's still yeah. one of the like five best hitters in the world, so you yeah. should you should show that. Now, as uh, I, I remember what the uh, another point was, it would be interesting 
to see a stat cast. So we've had now a stat cast broadcast. Now imagine if you can a stat cast season. Like one team decides mm-hmm. we're going to do this for 162 games. And that's where it gets really challenging, of course, because where I think now some of the some of the dumb useless or even worse than useless things that come up on a regular broadcast are said because the person saying them actually believes them and just has stupid bad opinions about baseball, but it's also they function as time fillers. And I think this is something that uh, Mike Petriello has already spoken to, just how difficult it is to fill three or, in this case, five hours of time yeah. with <laughs> yeah. talking about baseball. And then to do it day after day after day, I don't know if I don't know if you know this, but the baseball season has 162 games, and then there's another month of baseball after that, to say nothing of the month and a half of baseball before it. There is so much time that you have to fill that for a so-called smart broadcast, it becomes so extra difficult to fill that time with words. When you are watching on TV, you want some sort of noise. You can't just have silence. The broadcast has to be filling the time mostly, unless the crowd is going insane. But the temptation to just talk for the sake of talking is a lot higher than you might assume and i know that because we do this podcast and sometimes i need to talk and i don't know what to say and i just kind of (laughs) tread water until i feel like i've been making noise for 30 seconds and i can pass it back to you because you're always more prepared so that that is the real challenge and it would be interesting to see how often i mean you and i haven't like followed a team every single day for a long time but you know you just start to hear the same stories over and over and now you just imagine that the people who've been doing this for 40 years who have just been telling the same stories over and over and over and over and over (laughs) and it's almost impossible to not repeat yourself but anyway that would be the real challenge it seems like they did a good job in in this one game and if i can shift it to something vaguely related i just wanted to talk about those matchup stats you mentioned like two Uh two for four you hear this every broadcast right and it always comes up it seems like something that should matter and uh, the analysts, you and I, and so many other people have talked about how it doesn't matter. Now, I like having those numbers presented in broadcasts, mm-hmm. not because of their predictive skill. It means nothing for all the reasons everybody already knows. But I think psychologically, those numbers, I think, are presented for the fans. And if you're a fan of, like, the, I don't know, the Rangers, and you hear that this guy, like Chris Davis, for example, the good Chris Davis, this is annoying. One of them just needs to go away so that we can just talk about the one. I, like, I, I can't. one of them is probably going away. So. I, I wish there was a different way to pronounce it. Tris and Chris, whatever. Chris Davis versus the, the, the good Chris Davis versus the Rangers. Lots of home runs. It hits the crap out of the Rangers. It doesn't mean anything to me. But I like having those numbers presented because as a fan, you're like, yeah, it does seem like he always kills us. Or if this guy is like 10 for 15 against this pitcher, then it's like, oh, yeah, I have seen this happen a lot. Like it is part of the story, even if it's not predictive. So I like having those numbers. I just don't want anyone to say them and then say, and for that reason, I think this is how this is going to go. Yeah, it's hard to present retrospective information without sort of at least implicitly suggesting that it tells you something about those players and what they will do. And I don't think you want to see just like a projection and no historical stats. I mean, that would be better in some ways because it tells you what's going to happen. But I think we all want to know what has happened. And then I guess we each draw our own conclusions from that. So, yeah, I don't mind seeing that information just to know what has happened before. But (laughs) if you make decisions based on that, then that's probably going to be a problem. So 
I think it was great and good job everyone who was involved and then as soon as they gave us a, a taste of the great broadcast they took it away and, and now we're stuck with <laughs> with the regular broadcast so that's unfortunate but I, I think it went well enough that hopefully it will be brought back maybe who knows maybe next year there will always be a, an alternate statcast broadcast or maybe it'll just be the primary one who knows but it was a good proof of concept so we should talk about the actual game itself, which I think was not quite what we expected. The Rockies, of course, won 2-1 to one in 13 interminable innings. It was a really fun game for the first, uh, I don't know, eight or, or nine innings, and then it kind of became a slog after a while, I thought, because mm-hmm. it just went on so long. And reminded us all that playoff baseball lasts forever and that even when it lasts forever, it's usually exciting and suspenseful enough that we can keep watching. But when it goes 13 innings, that's it's a little long. So there just wasn't a whole lot of action and there were a lot of moments that... I think speaking of flashing war when hitters come up, I'm pretty sure that it flashed 8.2 war when Drew Butera came up one time, which I'm going to guess was a bug unless they're using some (laughs) incredibly advanced version of war that captures something about Drew Butera. I don't know. But there was a lot more Drew Butera and Tony Walters, which turned out to be a good thing for the Rockies, and Terrence Gore batting in crucial situations in an elimination game than I had expected coming into this one. Yeah, poor Terrence Gore. I mean, what is he goes up there and what chance does he have? And I know everyone's uh, I mean, like the the arc that Terrence Gore experienced in the game. Now, granted, yeah. I would I would like to just so everyone knows, Terrence Gore came in, he stole a base and then he scored. That's great. Yeah, so Terrence it worked, Gore sort of. Terrence but... Gore stole a base off Adam Ottavino. And I didn't know this yeah, about Adam true. Ottavino before. I know this now. Adam Ottavino this year, he only threw 77 in two-thirds innings. He had 24 stolen bases. Three runners were caught. That is terrible. You might remember yeah. a few years ago, Dallin Batantis, he had 21 stolen bases out of 21 uh-huh. attempts. That was that was worse in 73 <laughs> innings. But Adam Ottavino this year allowed the fourth most stolen bases while throwing like the what was it, the 180th most innings in baseball? And also, he didn't yeah. allow many base runners because he was a really good pitcher. So Adam Adovino... So you're saying Anthony Rizzo probably could have stolen second I'm, off Adam He <laughs> probably could have stolen second <laughs> off Adam Adovino. And now it's going to be interesting to see if the Brewers try to run like crazy on Adovino. And I haven't I haven't checked out the pitchers. Anyway, more to the point, regardless of Adovino's tendency to allow people to turn singles into doubles and doubles into triples and triples into inside the Barkham runs... Still, Gore stole the base, and then he scored on, on Baez's double. And then you think, great, that will be the last that we see of Terrence Gore in this game. And it was <laughs> yeah. not, because this is no. the playoffs, and things are stupid. And then he comes up. Now, okay, if we can just highlight that plate appearance that he had in the bottom of the, what was it, 13th, 12th? Yeah. 13th. It was the last inning, yeah. For, I know a lot of people expressed disappointment. He didn't lean into the pitch. Like the first pitch, I think it was, that, that basically mm-hmm. brushed him and, and nearly nicked him. I don't know what it's like to be a hitter. Actually, that's full stop. I don't know what it's like to be a hitter. It was yeah. it was terrifying, and I was in a bad high school league. But to, for people to suggest just lean into it, go ahead, go lean into something that's going really fast, and yeah. like put you can't lean into a pitch with your arm or shoulder 
and not have your head close to your arm and shoulder because your head I don't your head is right there like I'm looking at my shoulder right now and it's inches away from where my face is so <laughs> it's hard to compel someone to lean into a pitch under any circumstances but then I know Gore worked a full count which by the way is ridiculous you can't do that yeah. if you're a pitcher <laughs> and then he swung at ball four what would have been ball yeah. four and he struck out first of all that was a that was a perfect pitch but this is Terrence Gore. He has a minor league slugging percentage of 273 or something. Like he's he's mm-hmm. when he's hitting in the major leagues, I I have full confidence he is the worst non-hitter, non-pitcher yeah. hitter in in major league baseball. That was yes. of course that was going to happen. Like you can't you can't be mad that he swung a ball for because he's a bad hitter. The Cubs know he's a bad hitter. And also it was it was like a perfect slider by what Scott Oberg. So just yes. too bad for well, Terrence Gore. Can you be mad that he swung at all because he is so bad that he should have just <laughs> known himself well enough to be like, you know what? It's 3-2. What are the odds that if I actually swing at this pitch, I'm going to do something good with it? Yeah. I should just take it because I always – I mean, he should be doubled over like Ricky Henderson <laughs> to the max, like just with the smallest strike zone just to try to work his way on because once he gets on, he go- <laughs> he goes from being like basically the worst possible person to have <laughs> to when he gets on being the best possible person to have so you really really just need to get on base and I mean I don't know what the percentages are but I feel like if I were turret score I mean easier said than done because like you don't want to strike out looking at a fastball down the middle or something that's embarrassing no matter who you are but still if you're Terrence Gore and you have uh you know like <laughs> what is his his career OPS in AAA is 575 and you're in the majors now in a playoff game where you really need a base runner I don't know. I feel like I probably just would have been taking all the way in that situation. But I know. I, I, know. I, I note that uh, he had six plate appearances between 2014 and 15 combined in the regular season for the Royals, and he was actually hit in two of those six <laughs> plate appearances. So he does have some experience with this. But yeah, anyway, if I were a Cubs fan, I would have just been screaming, take, take, don't swing. It's like when a pitcher is up there with a full count, you don't really want him to swing either but i don't know hard to resist i guess i know i was i i haven't run through the numbers to see what the right thing would have been to do there because yeah you you want to protect but you are terrence gore but then even terrence gore is a professional baseball player who kind of knows how to hit but i think it was alex rodriguez who said when that was happening like uh when the count ran full that he said it was like 50 50 that the pitcher is going to throw a strike or not throw a strike and he was saying that terrence gore should just take it and i looked at the numbers and at least according to baseball savant the league average zone rate pitches in the zone overall is like 49% and in full counts it's about 59%. Now, I don't know if Scott Oberg intended to throw a ball. Mm-hmm. You probably don't intend to throw a ball as the fourth <laughs> ball to Terrence score leading off yeah. extra innings of a playoff game, but it was it was just a perfect pitch. I mm-hmm. don't know Terrence Gore's contact skill. Maybe you just go up with the intent of I'm going to f- try to foul off anything that looks close and then yeah. you know, take anything that's that's not but at the end of the day, I I don't think that it's really hard for me to believe that the right idea is to take all the way in that situation. Uh-huh. You have to defend to something, and I mean, Terrence Gore just isn't—he's not good, man. He's not—he's <laughs> not a good hitter. This is this is like getting the whole Billy Hamilton experience, except in a playoff game. This is the the good thing and the bad thing about Billy Hamilton, which I know no one has experienced that because he's on the Reds and no one watches that. But this is why Travis Sochek had that article about how Billy Hamilton should be 
put on a contender and not used as a starter because you don't want to end up where Terrence yeah. Gore wound up. Yeah. Well, I love that Terrence Gore exists and resurfaces every year at this time. I wonder how, like, how does he even feel about the regular season? Like, does he, it must feel like such a, I mean, the odds that he's going to get called up. I mean, I know he was up in September, but it must just feel so pointless even to play like the five months before that in the minors because you're not going to get called up. And uh, all you have to do is really just like keep your legs in shape. Like he seems like he could just kind of take most of the season off and just show up in September, basically, because I don't know what even the point of it is, but probably he enjoys playing baseball. So that's nice. Anyway, it was uh, a game that was close in part because it was well-pitched and Kyle Freeland, our man Kyle Freeland, was fantastic and he did his Kyle Freeland thing of just living on the edges and getting soft contact over and over and didn't seem to show any ill effects of pitching on short rest. Lester was maybe not quite as good but seemed to do a good job of exploiting what was quite a wide strike zone for that game and, you know, it just went on and on and on. And I think that, you know, it's frustrating for Cubs fans because their offensive outage continued. We saw that all September. We saw that in this game. And that is the thing you can point to for why they ended up losing the division and then losing this game. And I don't know whether it had anything to do with the fact that they were banged up and they didn't have a lot of off days. They had that stretch of just playing every day for a really long time. Of course, the Rockies had also traveled a whole lot <laughs> in the, the couple days before this game too. So probably neither of these teams was at 100%. But I don't know. It just it comes down to one run and that's the season. So that's how these things go. Yeah, right. I mean, it obviously doesn't help the Cubs that like Chris Bryant just wasn't himself. Yeah. He had a shoulder injury that he sustained in the middle of the year. And, and so we we talked before, we answered a question about Jelly Davis as, as the Cubs hitting coach and how much right. fault he might have. And as discussed in 2017 and then in 2018, the Cubs had a 108 WRC plus both years, yeah. like equally good. But mm -hmm. the trajectory of the second half was bad for the Cubs. They had a team WRC plus of, I think it was 89, which is not good. Down the stretch, Wilson Contreras was bad. Kyle Schwarber was bad. Jason Hayward resumed being bad. Ian Happ, he was bad. Albert Almora, he was bad. David Bodie, he was bad. Addison Russell was bad and then suspended. Victor Caratini, he was bad. Tom Lasella wasn't great. The Cubs' good hitters in the second half were Anthony Rizzo, Javier Baez, Ben Zobrist, and Daniel Murphy. Chris Bryant was about average, but... You look at this team, Bryant had a shoulder problem. I think you can chalk up struggles to that pretty safely. Uh, Kyle Schwarber developed a back problem. Also, he's just not great, but he had a back problem that I think cost him. And Wilson Contreras, I don't know what happened, but the way that his season went, I have to assume that he had something happen to him somewhere in the middle. I don't remember anything off the top of my head, but it just maybe he wore down. Maybe he was injured by something. But you look at this, I, the fact that he was so team-wide, for the most part, accepting Rizzo, Baez, and Zobrist, and, and then Murphy. I think it's tempting to say, oh, that get rid of the heading coach. But really, mm -hmm. this just looks like it's a season where injuries took the wind out of this lineup. I mean, if you knock down Chris Bryant, then your team is going to be worse, full stop. So mm -hmm. I know Theo Epstein gave a pretty candid 
presser on Wednesday, I guess, when he was taking accountability for what happened to the Cubs season, and maybe they just didn't want it enough. And I, I can't speak to that stuff, whether the Cubs took anything for granted, but it just seems like it's a season that injuries spoiled on the, the hitting side, on the pitching side, too. It seems like a cop-out, because when you talk about the Cubs' injuries, maybe it takes credit away from the Rockies, and I don't want to get into that. The Rockies did well. Cubs were hurt and did worse. Whatever. I don't care. It's one one game. But I think the the Cubs don't have reason to feel like they're in a desperate situation. They should be better than this next year. And again, they won Mm -hmm. 95 games. But that was that was a weird second half. You wouldn't have thought that this team would hit so poorly, but they really did for it for quite a long time. Yeah. And ultimately, the thing that knocked them out of the playoffs was a hit by probably the second worst hitter in baseball behind (laughs) turn score so i mean tony walters literally from 2017 to 18 minimum 400 plate appearances worst hitter in baseball with a 47 wrc plus over that spin that's worse than jeff mathis and he was the guy who got that hit on an 0-2 pitch like you would not expect Tony Walters to do anything on an 0-2 pitch, and he just happened to ground a ball that got through the infield, and that's that. So, How many of the worst Gore, Walters, and Drew Butera were in <laughs> yeah. this game? How many of the worst hitters in baseball were in the wildcard game? I know, and getting lots of plate appearances, too. I mean, <laughs> they're in there for other reasons, obviously, defensive base running. But, man, yeah, you did not expect to see guys like that taking those plate appearances. But Pat Palaika, too, WRC plus of nine this year. Whew, teams were pretty much out of position players. I, I guess you could critique the fact that they needed to give those guys plate appearances. There were different decisions that they could have made along the way, but... Anyway, it was weird, and that's it for the Cubs, and now the Rockies get to actually play a postseason series, which is fun for them because there's been a lot of losing in wildcard games. So talking about the fact that Walters showed up and Butera was in there and Gore was in there, classic case of National League Baseball, right? Yeah, you, right. You play the strategies, and Gore was in, he replaced Rizzo, et cetera. Now, it's more, you could say, is it is it more interesting to have teams take the risk of ending up in these situations or is it more interesting to have the best players who are in there and the whole game and I don't this this is basically the question right this required managing from Bud Black and and from Joe Madden and managing was was done with consequences and certainly the Rockies can't be that upset because they won but is it better what do you what do you think what do you prefer here Never mind pitcher hitting, just the strategy. Yeah, well, I mean, Terrence Gore is basically pitcher hitting. So <laughs> I I was getting tweets and, and comments during the game like, oh, Ben Lindbergh's going to be sharpening up his DH is better and NL baseball is bad take because of how that game was playing out. I don't know. I guess I'd rather see someone better hitting than seeing Terrence Gore hit with the season on the line or Jupiter hit with the season on the line. But... The strategy, I mean, there there's something to be said for the strategy, and there's something to be said for just the weirdness of Tony Walters, of all people, getting the crucial hit. So, I don't know. I guess I think the best response to my initial we-should-just-have-the-DH-everywhere argument was that 
it's good to have variety and that whatever brand of baseball you like better, you can get that. You can watch AL baseball if you like AL baseball. You can watch NL baseball if you like NL baseball. And why don't we just live and let live? And I found that somewhat persuasive. I don't want to dictate how anyone enjoys baseball. But personally, I'd probably rather just see more competitive plate appearances and feel like any pitch could actually be a hit. But then you do get that payoff where the guy you don't expect to get the hit, the Tony Walters of the world, gets the big hit. And it's maybe even more exciting because of that. Okay. that's So I think what we have arrived at, because I'll just take your answer, is that it's good to have them both, to have both mm-hmm. leagues and just keep it. Yeah, okay. So basically, yeah, don't change anything would be where <laughs> we have arrived here. Yeah, I mean, I'd still rather see hitters hit than pitchers hit, but but I I understand the other perspective. Yeah, I know. I don't. It's like it's probably fifty five forty five for me at this point. I don't even know which side is fifty five, which side's forty five, because it is objectively hilarious that the Cubs wound up with Terrence Gore leading off the bottom of the thirteenth when they <laughs> needed a run. Like that's yep. and it was technically it was all Joe Madden's fault. You know, he's the manager and he decided, well, this is what I'm going to do. But then how many people are tuning in because they want to watch what the manager does? And I actually don't have right. a good answer to that because the man, in the American League, the manager still makes decisions. He makes less frequent decisions unless you're Bob Melvin. Then you're making a decision after every single batter in the AL wildcard game. But, I mean, to have Walters and Viterra and Gore <laughs> and the seasons on the line, it's, <laughs> I guess it's neat in that it does test the depth a little more. And so it's maybe mm-hmm. more... It lets you get a better idea of how the whole team functions yeah. together instead of just right. the just uh, the starting lineup. So I guess it's not that either one is better, but it is different. It just tells you, it shows you something different about each baseball team. Right. And in theory, the Cubs have the depth and the flexibility not to be <laughs> hitting Terrence Gore in that situation, but they ended up hitting Terrence Gore. But yeah, if you're a team like the Dodgers or something, then you have the depth that maybe distinguishes you from your opponent and maybe you can take advantage of that. So I just saw this, uh, I guess it's supposed to be a, a fun fact. This is hockey related, but mm. someone posted it in the Facebook group. This was tweeted by the official NHL public relations Twitter account. Here we go. The Capitals established a new NHL record for the fastest two goals by a defending Stanley Cup champion in their season opener, one minute and 47 seconds, besting the mark previously held by the original Ottawa Senators, three minutes and 30 seconds on December 15th, 1923. Hashtag NHL stats. Hold on. (laughs) <laughs> fastest two goals by a defending a champion def- in the season in opener or the home opener, opener. season, season opener, opener. Yeah. okay so there have been like only 110 games or something basically total in this sample uh-huh. right and, and, and why does that even matter the fastest two goals like by a defending st- i mean that's i guess two out of ten yeah if if that, that would be like the fastest run scored by a World Series winner in opening day or something. Like, oh boy. All right. That's a weird one. <laughs> so AL wildcard game. I was in attendance. Yep. It was uh, semi-exciting. It was exciting for a while. The crowd was definitely into it. And this was, uh, I think... I don't know, seen as sort of a a referendum on the opener or the bullpen game. Maybe it's perceived that way. I think it's probably unfair to look at it that way. I mean, ultimately, 
you know, it kind of looks like that because it's like here are the A's throwing out their Liam Hendricks of the world and going with this bullpen game that no one's ever really tried in a playoff game before. And then on the other side, you just have the Yankees with their ace who was good (laughs) and then just hitting dingers. And Aaron Judge hit a homer and Stanton hit a homer and the amazing Luke Voigt came within a few inches of hitting a homer. So it kind of looked like, you know, here are the A's trying this fancy money ball tactic and here are the Yankees just kind of old school baseball, just, you know, an ace who throws 100 and the hardest hitting hitters in baseball just hitting hard hits and they won. And I mean, I think that the Yankees are really good and there's a lot to be said for Yankee style baseball. And I'm sure that if the A's had Luis Severino, they would have started Luis Severino. It's one game. I think the bullpen game was the A's best option because really otherwise it was what Edwin Jackson. I mean, Mike Fires has not been great lately. Sean Manaya's hurt. Trevor Cahill also has not been great lately and had a back issue, so I don't know if he's at full strength. I mean, there just wasn't an attractive option, and I think Matt Chapman said before the game it was like the cliche about how you want to win or lose with your best guys on the mound or whatever, and in the A's case, the bullpen, that was their best guys. Now, Liam Hendricks specifically was not their best guy, (laughs) so you could critique, I suppose, Liam Hendricks being the opener. I mean, the thing is, though, that people are calling this the opener, and technically, I guess he was an opener, but there was no bulk guy. This was not the opener where a reliever pitches and then a starter comes in in relief. This was just a bullpen game. So you knew that you were going to have to have, what, like seven relievers pitch at some point, and presumably Hendricks is one of your best seven guys, so you have to pitch him at some point. I guess that's the thinking. Yeah, and and Hendricks, of all the pitchers that the A's were expected to use on Wednesday night, Hendricks was the worst. Now, I don't think Hendricks is terrible, but again, he was designated for assignment in the middle of literally this season. Now, he came back in September, and he was was actually throwing quite a bit harder, which I didn't know until yesterday. He came back, and he was throwing in 95-96. But Liam Hendricks was going to be the vulnerability in this game. And, well, what, what are you going to do? We got bested by Aaron Judge. That happens to a lot of people. Right. Aaron Judge is really good. And and this mm-hmm. game, I know it wound up 7-2. to It wound up, the Yankees walked away with it. But this game was was close. This game was dramatic for mm-hmm. a while. And in the sixth inning, when the Yankees pulled away, I'll, just to remind people that sixth inning started off with an Aaron Judge, excuse me, swing, opposite field, grand ball double that actually bounced yes. in foul territory first. So that's just bad luck. Aaron Hicks followed with a, a real double, but like Luke Voigt's dramatic triple was an out in most other ballparks because it was just a yeah. casual fly ball. And Blake trying to nearly, arguably, but nearly had John Carlos Stanton struck out. So like there were the A's didn't pitch poorly in the game. They and they were facing a very, very good lineup. But this game, to me, it it really came down to a couple of innings where the A's had a chance to do some stuff at the plate and they just couldn't get anything going. And you can remember in the top of the fourth inning, the A's loaded the bases, and then Severino struck out Marcus Semyon on like a perfect 99-mile-per-hour mm-hmm. fastball. And then in yeah. the top of the fifth, I don't know, I'm not sure what Aaron Boone was doing leaving Severino out for the top of the fifth. I think we all mm-hmm. thought he was done after the yeah. fourth. He had thrown 80-some pitches, and he left the field just with this roar after he struck out Semyon. Right. Like, that's my last pitch, and it was great. Severino comes out, he allows back-to-back singles in the top of the fifth, which mm-hmm. was which was bad. Here comes Matt Chapman, Jed Larry, Chris Davis. The A's had two on and, and nobody out in what was then a two-run game. And 
I mean, credit to Dellen Batantis, who you remember at this point last year, the Yankees, Joe Girardi didn't want to use him in any kind of meaningful spot. He just didn't trust mm-hmm. Dellen Batantis. And I, I had thought, a lot of people thought that Batantis had become like the most obvious trade candidate in baseball yeah. because he had just fallen out of favor with his manager. And so the Yankees just got rid of the manager instead and kept <laughs> Dellen Batantis, who's been amazing this year. Mm-hmm. And Batantis, to me, to me personally, Batantis wound up being the story of the game. Now, maybe that's being overdramatic, but for him to get out of that jam at that point, he'd got Chapman, Lowry, Davis in order. And then in the sixth, he easily set down Olsen, Piscotti, and, and Loriano. Batances saved that game for the Yankees until the, the, the lineup was able to do what it was going to do. The A's didn't really do a whole lot after they threatened in the fifth. And and that was it. So credit to Batances for me. This was not a referendum on the opener or the bullpen game, whatever you want to call it. For one, for one thing, the Brewers are about to bullpen game, game one <laughs> right. of the playoffs today, exactly. shortly after yeah. we record. And, and again, this is an old point, but remember, last year in the wildcard game, the Yankees basically did the bullpen game after Severino was bad. Chad Green, David mm-hmm. Robertson, Tom McCainley, and Araldis Chapman threw eight and two-thirds innings of very, very good baseball. The Yankees bullpened it because their starter sucked. And so if Wednesday was a referendum on the bullpen game, so too was last year's AL wildcard game. So too will be this year's NLDS game between the Brewers Mm -hmm. and the Rockies. Brandon Woodruff is going to do whatever it is that he's going to do against the Rockies. And so the bullpen game isn't going anywhere. The A's made the right call, but they were worse than the Yankees, and the Yankees won. That's mm-hmm. the way that it went. Yeah, and you know most of the runs that the Yankees scored came off Fernando Rodney and Blake Trinan. I, I think Trinan allowed more runs in this game than he did in the second half of the season. So it happens, and you could say that maybe the A's got caught up in the idea that you need to condition someone to pitch the first inning and so they prepared Liam Hendricks for this role and so Liam Hendricks was out there after training as the opener for eight or so games down the stretch and you know he's not one of your better pitchers and so ideally they could have just gotten through this whole game with like Trinan for two and Rodney and Trevino and just like not used Hendricks at all but I don't know if that is really feasible and I don't know that you can go into a game and ask someone to do that for the first time ever in a must-win game in Yankee Stadium that was the reason that Joe Girardi cited last year for not doing the bullpen game was that no one had done it no one had practiced that way and the A's removed that objection by having Hendricks practice that and you know you're not going to have like Blake Trinan practice that eight games down the stretch when you're trying to clinch a playoff spot. So I don't know that there was a a better option. I mean, it was kind of a weakness we knew of with the A's all season long that they just did not have a Luis Severino or equivalent. And I think they did the best they could with that constraint and it didn't work out in this specific game. And if you played it again tomorrow, it might work out perfectly. So I don't think that this will put a crimp in anyone's plans and, I mean, it goes back to, I think, even before the first wildcard game was played in September of 2012, Dave Cameron was recommending that a team do this in a blog post. And then he was doing that again, like in three subsequent (laughs) years, I think it was just a standard Dave post every late September, early October. And 
now Dave is working for a team and teams are taking his suggestion several years later because the Rays finally broke the seal on that strategy and now you can kind of do that. So it doesn't make sense for everyone and I think that we will continue to see it, as you said, starting today with the Brewers who are kind of an A's-like team in that their rotation is not great and their bullpen is. So we'll see more of this. Yeah, I mean, for anyone who wants to be critical of the A's, and I get it, it after a game where you see a, a weird strategy, it's easy to play in the strategy. But like, what are you going to, Mike Fires, Edwin Jackson, Brett, what, are, what are we doing? Like, who are we yeah. really talking about here? The A's mm-hmm. didn't, there was no question here what the right strategy was. As we've talked about so many times, relief pitchers per inning, relief pitchers are better than starting pitchers. When you are in yep. a one-game playoff, you don't care about fatigue or about the day before or about the day after. You just want to minimize the amount of runs you're likely to allow. Bullpen game. We're going to talk about it next year. <laughs> talk about it right now. We're probably going to talk about it again in the next podcast and then later this month because the Brewers <laughs> yep. have a bad starting rotation. So they're going to be bullpenning. So mm-hmm. unless, I don't know, the game one goes terribly, meaningfully wrong. Yeah. And they decide, well, that was a huge mistake. Bullpenning is dead forever, not just for us, but for the rest of baseball. I don't know what the Rockies are going to have to do to make that happen. But, you know, it could it could happen here <laughs> in a few hours. But, nope, bullpen game, not going away. Going to see a lot of it because starting pitchers are dying. Not literally, yeah. but I guess we all are. <laughs> right. I guess we – I assume we will see more reliever innings pitched than starter innings pitched in this postseason. That seems likely. I think last year it was like 46.5%, I believe, reliever innings pitched in the postseason. And this regular season we saw for the first time relievers pitch more than 40% of innings, just barely. And I'm guessing that it will go up to over 50 in this postseason. So get used to it. And it will be interesting to see once we have a a slightly larger sample of the postseason being run this way, whether that does become a a predictive factor. Because it's always been so hard to figure out what works in the postseason and what predicts postseason success. And you can't even really use past data like earlier than, I don't know, 2015 or something now Mm -hmm. because postseason managing was totally different than it is today. So we can't look back in history and say, here's what worked before because it may not apply anymore. So we, we need a larger sample, I think, of games working like this before we can say, yeah, having a good bullpen is that's how you win in October. But it stands to reason that that would be the case. Right. And I'll just uh, I'll run a uh, quick little query here just because this is what we do. So uh, last year in the playoffs, starting pitchers, so 2017 in the playoffs, starting pitchers threw 53.9% of all pitches. So mm-hmm. forget innings. That's just 53.9% of all pitches. Now let's do some discovery. 2008, so basically a decade before, starting pitchers in the playoffs threw 62.1% of all pitches. I don't know if that's as dramatic as maybe you were expecting, but so 62% to 54% of all pitches. That's a, that's a pretty big shift, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. sure. So in conclusion, well, we already knew. <laughs> relievers are throwing more, and relievers are only going to throw even more. The Brewers are evidence of the Brewers are the team to watch because they are going to lean on their bullpen very heavily. The Yankees are also likely to lean on their bullpen very heavily because they have like six or seven really good relief pitchers. I didn't like even use Jonathan Holder. I don't think Holder even was in the stadium for the wild card <laughs> game on Wednesday, but he's real good too. So you figure 
But a Red Sox bullpen, probably not going to be stretched out that much. The Astros bullpen is deep, but the rotation is like amazing. The Indians rotation is also amazing. So there are teams who are not likely to get to their bullpen and use it as heavily as maybe you would expect. But the Brewers are almost certainly going to lead the way here because their bullpen is great and their rotation is not. So if you liked the A's and you are sad that they're gone, there's an equivalent that you can root (laughs) for in the other league that kind of does same thing. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about that series, which, as you noted, starting today, Thursday, and the area where the Rockies have a big advantage, I think, is the rotation, but that advantage is somewhat compromised because Marquez pitched in game 163 and then Freeland pitched in the wildcard game and frankly it seems like Freeland could just pitch every day and do that but they're not going to try that so those guys (laughs) will not pitch until what games three and four right and so that's a a bit of a a handicap I mean that hurts you have to go with Sensatella in game one and and then who would uh Anderson in in game two and so that I think removes some of the advantage that the Rockies would otherwise have and they kind of need an advantage because I think the Brewers are just generally better at things than the Rockies are I think the Brewers are a better hitting team they are definitely a better bullpenning team and probably a better defensive team too doesn't seem like they should be but they shift so much and do so much stuff with positioning I think they are pretty good and the Rockies have outfield issues so Brewers seem pretty well set up here yeah I I think the Brewers are are the definite favorite I think the Rockies are the presumably the the weakest of the teams remaining I guess you could argue about that because you know the Braves also kind of stand out we it's going to take me a while before I actually trust the Braves pitching staff but that's a different series Looking at this one, you can really feel the effect of the wildcard game because, as you said, Freeland will not be available till later in the series. Marquez will not be available till later in the series. And then the rotation does drop off after those two. This is not the strongest offensive team, although we'll see. David Dahl is hopefully the solution that they have in the corner outfield since they were playing mm-hmm. so so much you wouldn't believe how much Hirota Parra that this team was playing. This team that was in first place for for so long. But you look at the Brewers; they have a lot of. Position player depth, they have a lot of bullpen depth. The great weakness with the Brewers, just as it is, just was with the A's, was the starting rotation. But again, in the playoffs, it's silly season. The rotation is of less importance than ever. So many off days that are built in. So now the Rockies, to their credit, they also have kind of a deep-ish bullpen. I know not all the names that you think are good are actually good. I think Brian Shaw's not even on the roster after they gave him a lot of money, and Jake McGee is not great, but Wade Davis is fine. Adam Ottavino is really good, provided nobody's on base against him, and, and Scott Oberg is a better season than anyone would notice. This is kind of right in my wheelhouse. Love relievers who no one knows about, and Scott Oberg is a fun one. But yeah, yeah I think every, every advantage in this series short of the starting rotation, I guess, goes to the Brewers, and even in the rotation, the Rockies are kind of up against it because their best starters are only going to get one game apiece, if even that. So Brewers advantage, and what that means, I don't know, 60%. <laughs> favoritism maybe 65 (laughs) but it's it's slim but i don't know i'm i'm looking forward to it and i'm looking forward to see exactly how heavily the brewers bullpen gets taxed because again they are doing a bullpen start in game one so that's going to take a little bit of the wind out of their sails i was trying to think as i was watching that game who scott oberg reminded me of and i finally figured out it was the actor david morse and uh, i mentioned that in ringer slack and then after the game i saw on twitter 
that former guest John Rogley also tweeted that he had been trying to think of who Scott Oberg looked like, and it was the actor David Morse. Hmm. And then I tweeted at him my Slack comment, and then we virtually hugged on Twitter like Baez and Arenado just because we had both made that connection. Oh, and, uh, is it the yeah, sad I eyes? I think so. There's a resemblance there. Yeah. We didn't even talk about the hug. The hug seemed like a big deal at the time. I don't All know right, whether the hold hug on. will continue to be. Let's but. do the hug. That was, <laughs> first of all, credit to Baez, clever. So Baez, do we, we didn't yeah, need to set the scene, do we? Baez's face running ability, right? That We had not considered his, his hugging being part of that, but it was. Right. Everyone, is, if look, if you're not familiar with the hug, don't bother getting caught up. It's it's done, or you'll just see it on highlight reels later. Clever play. Javier Baez, you know, it, what, first and second, ground ball to third was the was the case. So Baez was going into third, but then he held up, required a tag, because Nolan Arenado was too far away from the base to go and touch it and throw to first. So it was a smart play by Baez to pause. And then by the time that he initiated the hug, I don't know. If ba- I don't, I don't believe that Baez was conniving here. I don't think that he knew that he was doing something strategic. I, I think we've seen Adrian Beltre do something similar to this before, where he's running to third and he knows he's dead meat, so he just kind of pauses and lets things happen. Thought it was a good moment, and I do not think that there was any sort of interference or obstruction or whatever, because there was not going to be a double play on that play. It was just a nice, sweet moment between players who are supposed to be. I guess, giving their all in opposition to one another. But still, beautiful hug. That is, this is, there should be more hugs in baseball in the Rangers and Mariners season finale or whatever it was. Adrian Beltre grounded out and then diverted his path back and went to the Mariners dugout and hugged Felix Hernandez at the rail. More hugs. Just everyone, everyone should hug. There's nothing wrong with it. There was not going to be a double play. No one needs to be upset. Had the Rockies lost, I'm sure people would have been furious. Had the Rockies lost in that inning, I'm sure people would have been furious because they would say, oh, Laronado was going to turn a double play. There's no Laronado. You got to trust him. He's going to he's gonna make outs happen. There was not going to be another out in that play. So he stopped. He tagged Javier Baez and gave him a hug. At least, actually, he just hugged him. I don't think he even tagged him. I'm not sure. But the hug is a tag. There's a lot of contact in a hug. I don't know if, if you've ever hugged anyone before. <laughs> Occasionally. Yeah. So now everyone gets to see the Brewers and the Rockies, and that's nice because probably not the best nationally known teams but really good and fun teams that should be known. So that's a fun series. And the other one, Braves-Dodgers. I don't know. What should we say about Braves-Dodgers? The Dodgers are better it's <laughs> one thing you could say Nailed but it. <laughs> but the Braves are good too because they too are a division winner and playoff team that's sort of how this works and I don't know I guess the the kind of mildly interesting thing was that Clayton Kershaw is starting game two instead of game one Ryu is starting game one that lines up Kershaw for a regular rest start and also, I guess, the Game 5 start. I don't know if that's uh, anything that notable, really, but it seems like the Dodgers have advantages probably in the bullpen, probably, well, probably just about everywhere, I guess, but it's not so lopsided that this isn't a series. Right, and now maybe maybe if you believe that Kenley Jansen is particularly vulnerable, and he has, he is worse, he's worse than mm-hmm. he's ever been, uh, at least as a pitcher, then you could say, well, so the bullpen difference here is not great, because the, the, maybe the best pitcher in the Dodgers' bullpen right now might well be Kenta Maeda. I don't know that yeah. for a fact, but he's, he's good. He'll be the bridge. They have interesting pitchers back there, but I know the Dodgers are not wild about their, their bullpen right now, and Jansen has caused some people some concern, but for all the talk about the Dodgers bullpen, Braves fans have complained about theirs at least 
as much. And like this is, I am happy about the turnaround by Anibal Sanchez, but it's still hard to trust. You know, going into the going into the playoffs, the Braves have a number of starters who have overachieved their peripherals, so to speak. And and we haven't mentioned it, but Dansby Swanson has not had the greatest season, but he is also not available. He has a uh, a wrist ligament tear that, honestly, where yeah. he is, I'm not sure that he would even come back for anywhere in the playoffs, certainly not at 100%. Mm-hmm. So the Braves are without a, a good defender and someone who I believe is a better hitter than Charlie Culberson, despite the fact that Charlie Culberson this year was actually like 12% better than average. I genuinely yeah. don't know how or why that happened, but it did. <laughs> so Charlie Culberson is is in there and he had a good season. But you know what? A few years ago, Drew Butera had an OPS of like 801. So things happen to baseball. They don't have to make sense. I would mm-hmm. think that... There are going to be some fun Ronald Acuna moments in this series. I think he's going to hit, I'm going to call it mm, two, two big dingers. Uh-huh. No more, no less. Two, exactly two big dingers from Ronald Acuna. Uh, but the Dodgers have the better lineup. They have the better bench. They have the better starting rotation. They have at least as good a bullpen. I don't really know about the defense since the Braves are without Swanson, but they do have Ender and Ciarte. Dodgers mm-hmm. uh, don't have one of those, but... Eh, it feels like the Dodgers are likely to win. There's this weird, I don't know how to explain it because I don't care about the Dodgers, but this there's this part of my brain that just thinks like at some point the Dodgers deserve a World Series that like <laughs> it would just kind of be a relief to me if they if they won one. But I'm never like really rooting for them. I just hope that it will eventually be something that has happened, if I can explain <laughs> that. But uh-huh. uh, in the meantime, you know, it would be it would be more fun to see the Braves advance just because they're new and like we've seen the Dodgers and if you look at the American League like we've seen this all before this is why the A's were so yeah. exciting because like oh yeah it's it's these four again it's going to be these four for a while I don't mean to spoil any secrets but <laughs> yeah the National League you you root for something fresh but like I don't know there's, I just kind of want Clayton Kershaw to get his so right maybe we're not supposed to own up to who our bandwagons are I have one I okay Hopefully people can trust that we're not going to let bias cloud our judgment here. <laughs> now that the A's are out, my I'm all on the Brewers bandwagon just because they mm-hmm. seem fresh and fun. But beyond yeah. them, well, I'm not going to rank teams. I'm not going to do that because that's going to make people mad. But do you have a bandwagon? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm probably with you just, I, I think, again, because of how the Brewers got here. I think it would be nice if a team won without having to do the Astros or Cubs thing, or you could even lump the Braves in there. I mean, there are a bunch of teams in these playoffs who got really bad and then got good again, and the Brewers did not. They never really got bad. They just built a team. They completely turned over. I mean, the A's turned over their roster. There was, like, no one from the 2014 playoff team on this team except, I guess, Jed Lowry, and he had gone to the Astros and back in the interim. (laughs) So that was, like, a completely different team. And, you know, I guess the Brewers just bought, they spent, they went out, they got Kane, they got Yelich this winter when a lot of teams weren't doing that. And they managed to just make all these adept moves that built them up again without having to go through a long period of being completely terrible. And it would be nice in the way that whenever a team wins, other teams look at them and think, oh, can we do what they did? Can we borrow something from their blueprint? And it'd be nice if the Brewers' blueprint was the one that became the new model. Now, I don't know if that's possible because it's hard to do what the <laughs> Brewers did. I still don't totally know how they did that. They just made a bunch of moves that worked out really, really well. So credit to them, but it's not as easily replicable a strategy as 
get completely awful for a while and get high draft picks and don't spend any money and just stockpile prospects and then get good again a few years down the road. That's kind of an easier plan to mimic, even if it's an unpleasant plan too. Yeah, right. I don't know what the lessons would be if different teams won here. If the Brewers won, it would show that you can win without tearing all the way down to the studs. That would be nice Mm -hmm. because no one wants those deep, deep rebuilds. They suck. They're horrible to experience, even if they work out. Now, of course, the Yankees did that too, but the Yankees are the Yankees. So. Yeah, right. If the Yankees or the Dodgers win, then the lesson is like have more money and ability than everyone else and right. just lean on that. Uh, yeah. If if the Rockies win, the lesson is, I don't know. No one knows what happens. Hope that you develop some pitchers and then it's baseball. Yeah. You can you can win a World Series. If the Braves yeah. win, that's kind of just the rebuild thing all over again. They mm-hmm. tore down. They were bad. They built around pitching. I guess, yep. kind of, except Acuna sort is their of, best yeah. player. So right. I don't know what, what we're going to do here. Their pitching staff is, is not that great. So if the Red Sox win, then trade for the best players and then sign the best players, and then you can win a World Series, I guess. So that's mm-hmm. neat. If the Indians win, that's a, that gets more interesting. Plus, you have the 70-year the World Series drought story. But, you know, the Indians don't feel fresh anymore because they've been good. They've been the only mm-hmm. good team in that division for a little while. And if the Astros win... Stop it. You had you had yours. I guess it would be interesting to have a repeat since we don't see that very often anymore. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it's like, yeah, we we know. We know the Astros are really good. And uh and it would I don't want to see a repeat, even though it would make for a somewhat compelling angle, but like no one mm-hmm. what what are they gonna are they gonna win the World Series and be like, Nobody believed in us. No one thought we could do <laughs> everyone thought you could everyone thought you could do it. Yeah. One more thing I meant to mention about the opener. I thought the the contrast just aesthetically was interesting because I think that the opener and the bullpen game, they make sense and there are reasons that teams do them. I, I was just reading in The Science of Hitting, Ted Williams's classic book about well, hitting. And he (laughs) writes in there about how the first plate appearance is the most important plate appearance of the game and of the career and of the season, because it's when you learn about the pitcher and you see his pitches and you can take that knowledge and take it into your second and third plate appearances and do better. And he said, you know, the more pitches you see in that first plate appearance, the better you're going to do from then on. And that is completely the case. He was right. MGL's research about the times through the order penalty has shown that the more pitches you see in that first plate appearance, the greater the advantage in your second and third and so on. So that was years ago, decades ago that he wrote that. And that's why teams want to take away that advantage. It it totally makes sense. But from a spectator perspective, I mean, we've talked about the impact on strikeouts and it's annoying to see all these pitching changes, even if some of them happen between innings. So that's true. But I think also just like as a story of a game, just like turning a game into a narrative and familiarizing yourself with the main characters like the pitcher, the starting pitcher, he's like the protagonist of the game, sort of like historically speaking. He's like the guy who's getting the most screen time and everyone else is coming and going and you have this batting order and it's just predetermined and you can't put someone up there when you want him to be up there. He's just up there when he has to be up there. But the starter, the starter's just the constant. He's there, and you can see him adjust as he goes through the game. Oh, he's throwing a bunch of fastballs in the first inning, but now he's mixing in some breaking balls. Or, you know, maybe he didn't have a good feel for this pitch early on, but now he has a good feel for this pitch. Or maybe he's losing some velocity and he's getting crafty. Like, it's just a story that you can follow, and you can see this guy getting fatigued and worn down. And it's just a fun thing to watch, I think. And we don't get that when you get the bullpen game. 
because it's just a new face every inning or two who's going max effort and not having to make any adjustments as the game goes on at all. And it makes me think like a good starting pitcher is like a superhero. It's like a superpower to be able to go through lineups a few times and be effective and not get fatigued. I mean, there are so many guys who are great for an inning at a time, but to be great for seven innings, it's like it's just a a higher order of baseball being almost. It really makes you appreciate just how much harder it is to do that. But just from kind of following along, there's just no continuity when you have a new pitcher every inning and I I sort of don't like that as much I I totally understand why teams are doing what they're doing and I would advise them to do it but just from watching along at home I kind of like having that anchor of the starting pitcher who's just there all the time this is one of those those elements where I think that there is a real potential I don't know for fact and uh, no one does but I think there is a real potential impact on the entertainment factor of a game because the starting pitcher is the most important or at least historically has been the most important participant in in a baseball game now the only difference I guess between the starting pitcher and like being a classic protagonist is that oftentimes the starting pitcher is no longer around for the climax of the game sometimes the protagonist has already been i don't know killed off is that too cruel of a thing to say (laughs) removed he's no longer on screen but i do maybe maybe it's just something we're so used to it maybe it's just going to take a few years for us to redevelop how we write narratives about these things or whether we need narratives at all or it's just going to change our experience and enough enough raise fans have have tweeted at me during the year that they are they find the games no less entertaining they like being like the clever team that's out there trying to get as many outs as possible as quickly as possible but of course if more teams are doing it then it's not going to feel so so clever so it's Mm -hmm. fun it's fun to see games like wednesday where you have one team with a classic starter and one team doing a different strategy i can get Mm -hmm. behind that but yeah if it's just going to be a different pitcher for both teams every inning or two something is going to be lost in the name of optimization and i am not convinced that is better for baseball, even if it is better for the teams doing it. Mm -hmm. So we haven't talked about the AL Division Series, and maybe we can do that a bit more tomorrow too, but big picture, it's teams that we've been seeing a lot of, and it just kind of feels like the, the same cast of characters, but... Also, really, really great matchups because these are excellent teams. And Red Sox-Yankees, it's kind of incredible that we haven't seen that in the playoffs since 2004. We know that 03 and 04, those were classic series. And, you know, it was just to be in Yankee Stadium and to hear the We Want Boston chants was kind of tickling me last night just because it kind of gets you juiced up for that series. And I know that rivalries aren't really what they used to be. Players don't hate each other the way that they did in 1978, for instance. There's no real animosity for the most part. And also you play each other 19 times throughout the regular season. But it's still pretty exciting. It's going to be both, I think, very fun series. And I don't know that there necessarily is a favorite in the Red Sox-Yankee series. It seems pretty close. I don't know how you could not pick the Astros in that series, but the Indians are also great, even though being in the AL Central makes them look better than they were. And officially, I got some numbers from Dan Hirsch after the last game of the regular season, and it turns out that based on their performance against extra division opponents, this year's AL Central was actually the second weakest division Ah. ever. (laughs) Just edged out by the 2005 NL West, unfortunately, but it is a terrible division, and they were the kings in that division. And 
I don't know. Is there a, an edge in the, the Red Sox-Yankees series that you see? Like, I I think I, I like the Yankees' home run reliant offense this time of year. I like the Yankees' bullpen. That is not a strength of the Red Sox. So in that sense, it seems like the Yankees are kind of a better playoff team, but the Red Sox are just as good a team, if not a better team overall. I think I think the Yankees are a little better than the Red Sox is built for the playoffs, and I think that the the Red Sox for they have a better team defense. But I think that even though the Yankees have a worse defense, they have so many strikeout pitchers that I don't, I'm not certain how much that's going to matter. Now we did see Miguel and Duhor make a, a mistake or two in the wild card game. He is a liability defensively. Everyone knows that. We also saw him get pulled for defense, and then Echeverria make an unbelievable. Oh my like, god! Spider Man just. Man, that grab, that made Aaron Boone look smart because he had just made that switch. But God, the altitude that he got on that and just like the kick flip he did like after he caught it, that was a very visually pleasing play. You couldn't do that in practice, but ever so often humans are capable of things that like if you were in a, a dire situation, there are stories of like if a rock falls on a fellow hiker, there are stories yeah. of like a hiker moving a 500 pound boulder off of like a yeah, friend's body right. just because when adrenaline takes over, you can you can do things that you've never even considered. Like so, I wonder how many players could have made that play in the middle of a playoff. Now it was already like a six-run game or whatever. Anyway, that's that's more to the point. I think the Astros Indian series is well. Look, they're all interesting. This one's interesting because they're the two. They're the teams with the best starting rotations, and they're going head to head. This is not going to be a bullpen series. If anything, no. the Indians consider the bullpen a little bit of a liability, even though Brad Hand is there mm-hmm. to help it. Andrew Miller's back. The Astros should be less afraid of going to their bullpen because it's good. But the rotation is just it's so dominant plus now they have lance mccullers in the bullpen which is crazy (laughs) so that that series feels very even to me and as for yankees red sox (laughs) closing thoughts i guess i know look it's been i was in college early in college when they faced each other in 2004 that was a dramatic series i was up to like 2 30 in the morning for every game that was also obnoxious but it was fun to go to class and then the professors would be like yeah we were watching too class is dismissed But, uh, but what <laughs> professors all have accents. <laughs> yeah. We all sound like, <laughs> <laughs> can you believe David Ortiz? He did it again. Unbelievable. Anyway, Where did you go to college again? <laughs> Trinity college, middle of uh, Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> okay. It was right on the border between Yankees and Red Sox country. So everyone was uh-huh. very passionate about the series. And I was kind of <laughs> caught in the middle of being like, go Mariners. So I think, uh, I know it's easy as a fan of the other 28 teams, it's really easy to just roll your eyes and be like, oh, Yankees-Red Sox, the media's favorite rivalry. No one mm-hmm. cares about this rivalry. Look, you can hate the Yankees and you can hate the Red Sox. You can hate them equally. You can hate one a little bit more than the other. Two very hateable teams completely understand. But there is no, there is objectively no denying the fact that this is a great rivalry and it's more fun to watch games where even if the players are acting the same because it's the playoffs, like no one's trying harder. It's fun to have the environment behind the game. The environment will be louder, more boisterous because this is a rivalry. Rivalries are for fans more than they are for players. Uh, Mm -hmm. I get it. Players are always very nice (laughs) to one another when they're not throwing (laughs) fastballs at their heads and necks. But the environment is such a big part of the playoff viewing experience. And for as much as these games are going to each take seven hours and 45 minutes, the environment is going to be loud from the start to the finish. And that is that's fun. And the only the only regret I don't have regrets. I'm not in charge of this. But if I had a regret, it's that this isn't the ALCS. But maybe that's better because that means one of these teams isn't guaranteed to go to the World Series. But it's fun to have rivals match up in the playoffs. I don't care if you hate them both. Even if you hate them both, this root for chaos. But having the crowd 
really does add something. Yankee Stadium is is getting more more of an environment every year that it gets older and older just because mm-hmm. it gets like smellier and worse, I guess. And so <laughs> fans can take it over. And like Fenway Park is a terrible ballpark that people are allowed in. So <laughs> it's going to be a fun it's going to be a fun series, even though I'm not really rooting for for either team. But that's that's freeing and uh, mm-hmm. playoffs that doesn't pit rivals together is playoffs that's that's missing something. Fenway's great. That's Fenway slander. I like Fenway. I don't care. Fenway's gross. It is dirty, <laughs> but that's part of the appeal. All right. So next time we will presumably talk about NL Division Series games that we have seen. We can maybe talk some more about the ALDSs and maybe we'll get to some emails. I don't know. It's always kind of obvious what we are going to talk about in the playoffs, which is uh, sort of nice for us. So we will continue our playoff talk next time. Being around Fenway is enjoyable. <laughs> like the idea of Fenway is enjoyable. I like that it is just so ridiculous looking compared to all the other ballparks, but like actually mm-hmm. watching a game there is unpleasant. And I say that as someone who's had very good road team watching experiences at Fenway Park. The seats are all pointing in the wrong direction. They're built for people who are like four <laughs> foot eight and 95 pounds. It's a stupid mm-hmm. ballpark that's too old, but whatever. I'm glad it's yeah. there, just like I'm glad the pitcher's hit in half the time. <laughs> yeah, well, it is nice to have that sense of history and know that people played in the same place that you were watching. And I think it's been renovated so much that, I, I don't know, I think the sight lines are probably better than Wrigley. There are like fewer poles in the way, it seems to me, anecdotally at least. Anyway, I don't know. We've just managed to anger everyone. So well, let's actually, stop here. <laughs> if, uh, if Red Sox fans are responsible for a lot of our Patreon donations, then I rescind everything that I just said. <laughs> Fenway Park is outstanding. You have a beautiful stadium in a beautiful city. Best City in the world, hub of America, hub of (laughs) baseball, Boston, Massachusetts. I've loved all of my time there. All right, that's better. Well, as I wrap this up, the Brewers just walked off on Colorado. Dodgers are up on the Braves. Our predictions are looking good so far. It's impossible to keep up with the playoff schedule in these early rounds when there are so many games going on. By the time we post a podcast, there's been more baseball, but that was an exciting one. I'm sure we'll talk about it at greater length tomorrow. I was just struck by the penultimate pitch with Moustakas batting 0-2 count, and there was a foul tip that Walters almost held on to. It was like a basketball bouncing on the rim, bouncing, bouncing. It went off one side of his glove and into the pocket and out the other side of his glove and ultimately he just couldn't hang on to it and Moustakas just drilled the next ball into the outfield for a single and a walk-off. It's not a game of inches, it's a game of millimeters. I'm going to link to a couple posts that Jeff wrote about Adovino and about Dallin Batances. If you're listening to this on Friday, you should be able to find an article I wrote at The Ringer about Chris Sale, who really fascinates me. He is such an enigma right now. One other thing, one of our listeners, John Tower Ackerman, he made a t-shirt to commemorate the the Chris Davis 247 feet. If you buy a shirt in the next week, you will be entered to win a Patreon subscription, and the proceeds of the sales go to a nonprofit that supports youth baseball in Oakland. So thanks to John for making that. It's just a black tee that has white text that says 247, 247, 247, 247, with ampersands between the 247s. You can find this at the247shirt.com, and I will link to that on the show page and in the Facebook group. You can support the podcast in other ways by going to Patreon, signing up to pledge some small monthly amount. That's at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. And the following five listeners have already done so. Chris Hilton, Nick Dyer, Jeremiah Dunham, Jeff Gilbert, and David Cohen. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. 
And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will try to get to some emails tomorrow, so send us some. Podcast at Fangraphs.com. That's the place for your questions and comments. You can also send them through the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. And we will return to talk to you soon.